This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. This episode of Popaganda is sponsored by Girl Develop It, a nonprofit organization that exists to provide affordable and judgment-free opportunities for women interested in learning web and software development. Through in-person classes and community support, Girl Develop It helps women of diverse backgrounds achieve their technology goals and build confidence in their careers and everyday lives. Find out more at www.girldevelopit.com. Hello, everyone. This is Sarah. And as you can hear from my scratchy voice, I'm a little sick. It's the time of year when the world is wet and gray and everyone seems to be getting a little sick. When winter sets in, I just want to hunker down with a good book or movie or video game. It's a good time to focus down on my favorite things, to stay inside and drink too much tea and get cozy. Basically, winter is the best time to be a nerd. I have every excuse to sit around nerding out on something while it's too cold to go outside. And that's good because the newest print issue of Bitch is all about nerds. The nerds issue is gorgeous. The print team here at Bitch redesigned the magazine, starting with this issue. When it lands in subscribers' mailboxes, you'll notice it's got some beautiful new design details. I won't go into the specifics so that it's still a surprise for you, but I just love it. Plus, as always, the new issue is packed with good writing. We've got articles about science fiction, technology, and women who want to go to Mars. On this episode of the podcast, we're nerding out too. We're highlighting stories of favorite nerds. This show includes a perspective on race and Star Wars films. We discuss the power of representation in the new Ms. Marvel series and talk with fascinating comic book writer Kelly Sue DeConnick. Even if you don't self-identify as a nerd, I think you'll like these stories. And maybe we can convert you. Also, we asked several bitch contributors to call and tell us about their favorite nerd. You'll hear three of those lovely, nerdy voicemails throughout the show. Here's one right now. Let's kick it off with Aya de Leon. This is Aya de Leon, and I have to say right now, at this particular moment, my favorite nerd is Melissa McCarthy from Spy. I saw the movie on my way back uh, from the Binders Conference in New York. I saw it on the plane and was literally, I was in the middle seat and was laughing so loud, I think I pissed off the men who were sitting on either side of me. It was so funny for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. She's in the CIA and she's the person talking in the ear of the super spy. and She's kind of codependent and, you know, she's definitely very plus-sized and wallflower-ish. Um... But then she gets sent on a mission and brings all of her nerdiness to that process and busts out of her nerdy shell. And oh my God, that movie was so funny and so feminist and so fat positive. Um, So yeah, I just, I also love those uh, reversal stories where the nerd has to be pushed out of their sort of comfort zone behind the screen, on the phone, in the background. Uh, So... Anyone who hasn't seen it should. And uh, it's the spy nerd that I want to report on for today.
In the Nerds issue of Bitch, four Black women write about race and nerdery. The article is called Geeking Out, Four Writers on Nerding While Black. Writer Hoshunda Sanders introduces the four perspectives by explaining, From Scooby-Doo's Velma to Willow on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, nerd girls have always been white by default. Even well-known black nerds, a.k.a. blurds, from Steve Urkel to Neil deGrasse Tyson, are men. But finally, black women who also happen to be nerds are having their moment. Writer and showrunner Shonda Rhimes and filmmaker Ava DuVernay have led the charge to create more complex black women characters on screen. In the STEM world, black women are pioneering. And online, black nerds are connecting like never before and seeking inclusion and agency in science, comics, gaming, and elsewhere in pop culture, where we are still too rarely represented. Writer and self-professed book nerd Vanessa Willoughby focused her piece for the article on being a science fiction fan. Let's listen. When it was announced that Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o had been cast in the next J.J. Abrams Star Wars installment, Black fans were ecstatic. Yet when early sketches of her character hit the web, these same fans were a little ruffled by the drawing. Instead of an elegant, otherworldly humanoid or a lightsaber-wielding Jedi, Nyong'o's character was a CGI, bandana-wearing, green-skinned alien. Nyong'o's Star Wars role exemplifies how Hollywood superficially honors diversity without having to actually show it on screen. Black sci-fi fans have realized there's a fine line between visibility and tokenism, that many diversity attempts are often conditional, and that casting black women is viewed as an inconvenient afterthought. Star Wars joins other popular franchises for a sloppy treatment of race and racial identity that feeds into the alienation of black fans. When Marvel Comics announced that instead of Peter Parker, Miles Morales, a black Hispanic teenager, would serve as Spider-Man's alter ego, fans generally embraced it. Yet documents from the Sony email leaks show that gatekeepers were adamant that Spider-Man could not be a black actor. In the Hunger Games series, Katniss has olive skin and black hair, and many readers hoped the girl on fire could be a woman of color. Not only was the movie part given to a brunette Jennifer Lawrence, but racist moviegoers complained about black actors in the film, including Rue, the small, quick-witted girl character explicitly written as having dark brown skin. Actress Zoe Saldana has carved out a space in sci-fi, but with the exception of her role as Lieutenant Uhura in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot, she voices alien or other non-human characters, blue skin and avatar, green and guardians of the galaxy. To some, it's a sign of progress that Saldana is now a go-to actress for female sci-fi roles. Saldana herself told Time, 80% of what's out there is told through the point of view of a male. I can sit down with so many filmmakers for so many projects and play so many actors' girlfriends or wives. But in sci-fi, I can play Gamora. It's great that Saldana is breaking through glass ceilings, but that doesn't mean her success is necessarily opening the floodgates for a plethora of black actresses seeking sci-fi roles. And relying on one actress to fill a diversity quota is not only lazy, but dangerously counterproductive. On television, viewers were delighted to see black actress Nicole Bahari 
in an autonomous, intelligent, kick-ass leading role on Fox's Sleepy Hollow. Yet as the seasons went on, writers sidelined Bahari's leading lady in favor of Ichabod's wife, a white woman named Katrina. For sci-fi viewers, this sent the message that even when a black woman is an integral part of a show, her white counterpart will always outrank her. Even sci-fi that's considered more feminist falls flat. Joss Whedon, routinely cited as a sci-fi fantasy director who consciously writes well-rounded women characters, typically filters narratives through the perspective of a white woman. The majority of his shows, such as Buffy, Dollhouse, and even Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., do not have black women as the main protagonists. Black girls and women who watch these shows may enjoy the refreshingly multidimensional female characters, but rarely do they see themselves reflected back, instead treated to familiar stereotypes like the token black friend or the sassy, strong black woman. If one were to go solely on primetime shows like The Big Bang Theory, a viewer might believe that nerds and or geeks are still embodied by the same tired stereotypes. White, male, socially awkward, yet intellectually brilliant. But if you look elsewhere, you'll see a different story. Online, black girl nerds have used social media not only to find community, but to achieve the sort of validation and visibility mainstream media denies them. Harry Potter fans have used race bending as a way to re-image the beloved trio into characters that look more like them, namely with Hermione, whose physical descriptions in the book are limited to her big bushy hair and oversized teeth. Black cosplayers routinely race bend by dressing up as characters canonically written as white. Characters like Storm from X-Men, Martha Jones from Doctor Who, and Kendra Young from Buffy the Vampire Slayer are loved and remembered so fiercely because they are some of the few, but they are not the norm in sci-fi and fantasy casting. Black female fans want to see an accurate and nuanced portrayal of characters that look like them. By using social media and the free-flowing exchange of ideas within fandoms, these fans are fighting back against the one-note offerings of Hollywood. Black characters in these genres have gone from non-existent to a rare commodity, mainly included to provide the illusion of an equal playing field. The community of black girl nerds relentlessly and continuously challenges the status quo by carving out their own space at the table, refusing to settle for the notion of good enough. That was writer Vanessa Willoughby. You can read three more brilliant perspectives on race and nerdery in the whole article, Geeking Out, Four Perspectives on Nerding While Black, in the Nerds print issue or at bitchmedia.org. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about our favorite nerds. A few weeks ago, I posted a photo of some new comic books on our Instagram and our Facebook and asked Bitch's followers what their favorite comics are right now. Many people kept saying the same title, Bitch Planet. Bitch Planet is a comic series set in a near future. People who are convicted of antisocial behavior are stamped with the label non-compliant, and the government ships them through outer space to a prison planet. 
The story revolves around the women who are incarcerated on this planet, exploring their backstories and their struggles for dignity in the face of corrupt authoritarian power. It comments on current realities of prison and patriarchy, all with a vibe and feel that riffs on 1970s prison exploitation films. That series, Bitch Planet, is written by Kelly Sue DeConnick. She is also the brains behind several other beloved series, including a surreal western called Pretty Deadly. That series feels like a classic western that's colored by mythology and magic. Pretty Deadly centers on the daughter of death, and is woven of storylines that deal with violent duels and stunning moments of compassion. Kelly Sue DeConnick was nominated for an Eisner Award for her work writing the series. That's a huge deal in the comics industry. And this month, the sixth issue of Pretty Deadly hits newsstands. Kelly Sue, thanks for joining us on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think you are a lot of people's favorite nerd, or at least one of their favorite nerds. <laughs> Something that something that is constantly um, surprising and amazing to me is how many people have tattoos of your work. Yeah, it's no less surprising or amazing when you're me. <laughs> There's this whole phenomena of people getting tattoos of a little logo from Bitch Planet, an NC that stands for non-compliant, tattooed somewhere on their body. Does that? How does that feel to see that? Humbling, incredibly humbling. Um, I really try to keep my ego in check by remembering that that isn't about me. You know, like that, that particular thing isn't even really about my work. It's, um, uh, we are, we are a, I mean, I'm, look, I'm super happy that people have used the book as a, an entree to having this sort of dialogue with themselves. Um, but it's, it is not, it's not about the book. Um, my, my friend, uh, uh, Dan Curtis Johnson said, you don't get that tattoo because you're a fan of the book. You get that tattoo because the book is a fan of something in you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, so it's sort of a symbol of saying, Hey, I'm an, I'm non-compliant in, in society. I don't fit into society. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't fit in my issue in the box that was issued me, um, you know, and, and like I'm 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 too fat. I'm too black. I'm too brown. I'm too uh, shy. I'm too outgoing. I'm too sexual. I'm too religious. I'm too, you know, any of these things that that women in particular, um, although it's it's not exclusive to women, certainly, but women in particular are asked to, you know, conform to these very narrow standards. Like, you know, please be one of these six types. Um, and when you are outside of that in any way, then, uh, then, you know, you're asked to pay a price for that. Um, and that, and I think what that symbol says is, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't fit in my box and that's okay. Like I'm, I'm, I am fine with who I am. Yeah. It's, it's interesting this series. So the first volume of Bitch Planet comics just came out this fall, the first collection of bitch planet that you can go and buy at the store um and i think it's interesting how the series has evolved where it's focused on the stories of women who are incarcerated on a on a prison planet and basically none of them are people you typically see in mainstream comics a lot of them are are queer and just have all different body sizes and just have really interesting character design that's nothing like the norm like the 
muscular, strapping, kind of bland people you often see in superhero comics. Um, when you were setting out to write this story about uh, women in prison, is is it surprising to you that so many people identify with that? Or does that make sense to you? Because it, you're writing about people who are marginalized and all kinds of people can identify with that. It was, I mean, it was definitely intentional, but I, I think that the thing that is this the, sort of the, the underlying truth of the book is, uh, you know, you know, this is this absurd world where you get, you know, sent to a prison planet for being, you know, for not fitting in your box, but n- no one is compliant. No one fits in their box. Th- this, this ideal woman uh, is a myth. So that's why when you do see the compliant woman, the compliant woman is a hologram. She always she's always drawn in pink lines, and she's sort of she's sort of a she acts as like a prison guard enforcer um, in the in the prison. She's uh, sort of overseeing what's happening as the compliant woman. Yeah, she's a she's a hologram that. Um, but you also see her on the world. You also see her like on Earth. She's um, She's most of the women that you see on television. And it's interesting with the series because it has such a it has really strong stories and a really strong plot moving through it as these women sort of try to maintain some dignity in the face of uh, authoritarian power structures. Um, but there's also an educational component to it. On the back page of um, some of the issues, there's you had a discussion of like what is intersectional feminism, and. I was struck by that, and I was wondering how much you see this series as sort of trying to introduce people to um, ideas and feminist sort of theories and perspectives and frameworks, and how much you want people just to be sucked in by the plot. Well, I mean, I think it's 50-50. I think the um, the plot and the story make up the bulk of our pages, but I think if you ask the people who buy the book why they buy the book, it's as much for the back matter as it is for the story pages. But what we did want to do is we wanted to, to have the feeling of uh, a zine. We wanted it to, to be like, we, we refer to the back pages as community pages, right? And we want it to be a place where people can come together and kind of share not just their frustrations, but like their successes and, and, um, and find each other and find community and also find the solace that comes from knowing that you're not the only person who feels these things. Yeah. So this, I mean, this first collection collects the first five issues of Bitch Planet. And um, what's, I mean, what's striking about it, as you said, is that it's such an overtly feminist comic that's really focused on the stories of all female characters. And the comics industry has not had a a great history of including women, especially not including uh, characters who are women of color. I'm wondering, was this a hard sell for this storyline? Like, did you come up against resistance from uh, comics edit, like executives or um, collectors or Wait, fans? That's the beauty of working at Image Comics. I mean, I didn't, I never had that conversation. Never. Um, my pitch to Eric Stevenson on Bitch Planet was um, it, 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 something along the lines of Valentine Delandro and I are playing with this idea of a women in prison exploitation riff with a, a gladiatorial kind of sport. And, you know, we're tentatively calling it 
bitch planet, but that's just a working title. We could change that. Uh, and that was, uh, that I think was the entirety of it. And I expected like, you know, write me up a one pager on it or, you know, talk to me when you've got it. Like, I don't know what I was expecting, but like, I was expecting him to come back and say, Hmm, tell me more, you know, but instead he came back and said, I would very much like to publish something called bitch planet. And that was it. That seems so exciting and also rare to have that level of trust from a publisher. You know, I think that that is, you know, I, we had a, a proven success with Pretty Deadly, and I think that's, but that's one of the beautiful things of when you're in with Image is, you know, they don't police you. They don't look over your shoulder. They see the book when you upload it. Um, and in fact, I called at one point, I called and, and spoke to Eric because I was concerned about some of the nudity in Pretty Deadly. We have, you know, female nudity is nothing uncommon in, in comics, but uh, male nudity is still kind of a thing. And some people won't carry the book. And, you know, I just wanted to sort of make sure I didn't catch them off guard uh, and get myself in trouble. And so I called and said, you know, hey, you know, I don't know if you want to see this art ahead of time or what, but we have uh, some frontal male nudity in the second issue of Pretty Deadly and um, I just don't want you to run into any distribution problems. And so you called him up and said, there's a bunch of dicks in my book. <laughs> Is that okay? <laughs> exactly it. Just one dick. It's just one dick. But it, it does appear from a couple of angles, I think. Um, and yeah, and, and Stevenson's response was, uh, yeah, I published Howard Chaikin. You're not going to shock me. <laughs> well, all right. Off we go then. One part of me is like, oh, really? Is that a dare? But no. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they've been amazing. And there's never. And in fact, the woman who does this woman named Trisha, who works at Image, who does our kind of like back end stuff, like handling all the technical aspects of once we upload the book, she makes sure that, you know, it becomes a book. Um, she is a huge fan of the book and like always gets really excited for, for it to be uploaded and is really invested in the story. And like, they're incredibly, incredibly supportive. One thing I love about the story of um, Bitch Planet is, is sort of there's, is the who it centers on. When I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that the first issue um, feels like this, the whole narrative is going to be centered on this one uh, middle class white woman who's sort of been, uh, who's innocent sort of, but is incarcerated in prison um, on this prison planet. And then the narrative shifts and it turns out the story's not actually about her. And that was such a shock to me because usually as, as, as a viewer, um, when, even when there's stories that include lots of people of color or lots of queer people or um, people who aren't often seen in our pop culture, the narrative still centers on that white, straight, middle class, I'm innocent, I don't belong here kind of voice. Um, so it was cool to see that that narrative shift. Yeah, I I, I could get why that's done, but I don't like it. I, don't, I think that like the message that's inherent is that in that is that um, the culture that you know that this that this white woman is the you know or white man depending on the story is the um, is our Trojan horse into is uh, somehow other you know that it's. I don't know, less American or less 
you know, depending on the context of, of what we're talking about, that it's that it's that it's somehow not us, you know. And nope, these are all these are our stories. You can identify with anyone in this book. <laughs> like they're all human beings. You can find something in them that you relate to. And it shouldn't be it shouldn't be so difficult to see that, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I, I just love about the series is the way that it, it really comments on current realities. There's so many things in the, in the book that feel like, oh, that's happening right now. I could see that there's, um, you know, like sort of constant, upbeat, perky attitude to, from media about uh, how you should look and how you should be and a lot of shaming around your body. And um, people have... TV screens in their homes at all times that are telling them how to do and how to be. Um, how often do you see stuff in real life and say, ooh, I've got to put that into Bitch Planet? Or is there anything from the from the real world that, that you dropped in? When I was trying to figure out how we would teach the rules of the game, uh, the sport, uh, Dewey Mila or Megaton, how we would teach it to the prisoners... Which, which is a sport that they have to that they play. It's sort of like an Olympic gladiatorial Hunger Games horrible style sport that the women who are incarcerated wind up taking part in, in during the series. Yeah, um, you know, and it's it's loosely it's loosely based on an on an old Italian sport actually, but the structure of it and some of the the things about it that I find problematic um, come from you know, American football, the NFL. Um, but so I was, uh, I was trying to figure out what, well, you know, what narrative device would we use to, to teach this both, teach the rules both to the, um, uh, to the reader and to the women themselves. And, and we came up with, we're going to do it in a twofold way. One was, we, you know, we have this infographic, this two page spread that kind of lays out the, uh, the, the field and, you know, where the, the judges sit and how to score. So that would be an easy thing to refer to. But then we also did a video. So there's a, there's a video that's playing on a big screen that the women are watching that's kind of explaining to them how the, the sport is played. And I did a YouTube search. Just looking for like a, a football 101 kind of thing. And I found a video that is almost word for word Haley and, and Kaylee, uh, who are the two hologram characters, this sort of bouncing, you know, ho- hooters, wait- waitress dressed girls who are ostensibly ex- explaining to other women why they should watch this sport, making the assumption that, uh, of course, you couldn't possibly just genuinely be interested. You must be doing it to impress a man. And that was an actual video that I found, which was both heartbreaking to me. Like the the woman who made this video, I wanted to like make her spaghetti and explain like it is okay for you to just like what you like, you know. And at the same time, I also was just livid with her at this, this, it, it, the way that she was framing this was the, that, um, you know, if you know enough about this sport to make it look like you're actually interested, men are going to find you irresistible. Yeah, that's, that's the video in the, in the comic. The women who are incarcerated are forced to watch this video about, uh, basically like, here, here's the rules of the sport so you can understand it, so you can connect with your boyfriend or with guys more. 
um, you would never play this sport. You wouldn't be interested in it for yourself. But here's the rules so that your boyfriend can understand it. And that's the way that we come to understand what this game is that they play. Help him understand if he's having trouble or, you know, like you can fool a dude into thinking that you're actually into this thing that they're all clearly into because, you know, we also make assumptions for men. That almost sounds like the fake geek girls meme, you know? (laughs) And it was so heartbreaking. It was so like... I, I've, I've been so tempted a couple of times to link to the video. It's not that hard to find, but I don't I don't want to mock this woman because I feel like she is a victim of what she has been told to value. Uh, and I and I don't want to come down on her at the same time. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> girl, girl, what's up? You know? Um, well, let's talk about your other series, uh, Pretty Deadly, which the sixth issue just came out this month. I believe today is maybe the release date for it. Um, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was. It came out yesterday. Yesterday. Um, well, congratulations on the sixth issue of that series, and uh, that has a totally different feel from Bitch Planet. While Bitch Planet is more riff on 1970s prison exploitation, women in prison films, Pretty Deadly is uh, sort of, in my mind, a remix of classic westerns with a kind of uh, mythological, magical, surreal bent to it. Can you tell me about wanting to write a Western and and why you chose this to be a Western and how you feel about uh, the series now that it's on its sixth issue? Boy, I love this book, but um, uh, but it's a, it's it's I love it the way you sort of love a difficult child. You know, this book fights back. Um, it's a really hard book to write. Um, it's a challenging book to read, although I love that part of it. Um, um, we originally wanted to do a very straightforward Sergio Leone kind of Western, and then it, it never quite felt right. It never really gelled, um, you know, like way back in the way back when it was just notes. Um, this was the story of uh, Jenny, a sharpshooter in a Wild West show, and, and you know, Sissy was the, the Josie Wales dog that I gave her to spit on just to give her somebody to talk to, you know? Um, but we, we really kind of wanted to, to see if we could do a woman, man with no name, you know, Mm, kind kind of a a Clint Eastwood character. Who's, you know, a bit of a vigilante. Uh, Yeah. And a, and a, and a, a cipher, a, um, and not so much a protagonist as a sort of force of nature around whom the rest of the world has to bend, you know, um, like a, a High Plains Drifter or um, a Pale Rider, like that kind of that man with no name, you know. And so that was the that was the place we started. And then it, but it it just never felt right. And it didn't start to feel right until we kind of let the monsters in until like the the, it was the literal the, monsters, not yes, like <laughs> yes. And when when we found that, then everything else, well, fell into place. Overstates it, but um, then everything started to feel right. And interestingly, I um, I was a little sad about that because I felt like we had gotten away from our original intentions. Even though I loved the book, I was like, yeah, you know, but we'd wanted to do this this Leone thing. And then Charlie Houston found this quote for me. Um, and a, an amazing, lovely fan has uh, did a, a, a needlework piece that I, I have right next to my desk now. Um, 
it's this landscape with this giant moon and it says the myth is everything Sergio, Sergio Leone and the the larger quote says is something like nothing matters but the myth the myth is everything and so in the end we felt like we had actually done Leone we had circled around to it but we come at it from a direction that we hadn't expected so telling a western with a mythological framework to it yeah um, which I mean I think when you when you think about the man with no name that's very much the case. I just had never put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a real mythos around that person, and they can just be sort of a, a hero former. Yeah, I mean, he 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 feels like he rode in from nowhere. Like he's there. He's he's there for justice. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that this is also this is a hard series to write, and it's a hard series to read a little bit. It's challenging in part because the series is really uh, inventive and doesn't follow a lot of the typical comic book story arc systems <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it a lot of times if you just jump into reading the first issue you can feel overwhelmed or like what's going on I don't know what's happening here not the hero's journey right it's not like you cannot map this Right. And then by the end of um, maybe the first issue or a few along, it just starts to grow on you. If you just if you just roll with the world, you'll eventually pick up what's going on and sort of fall into it. But it's kind of like, yeah, all the pieces are on the table by the third issue. And in the first arc, they've all come together by the last page of the fifth issue. Um, But, you know, what we we always say that it it rewards a reread. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of it feels like coming into a story in the middle or stepping into a different world where you don't understand the rules exactly or exactly what's going on. You just have to kind of go with the flow for a while. Yeah, it's very immersive. Mm-hmm. And how why why is that why you decided to to write the story? Why be more um, avant garde with your approach to the narrative when you're also pushing boundaries in forms of art and character representation? Why also tweak with the narrative in that way? You know, it was a tantrum, quite frankly. Um, You know, Emma and I had both come out of years of doing uh, traditional comics work or corporate comics and, and they're great and we love them and we learned a lot there and, and, but you know, there was a very narrow structure with which you can work in, in there are expectations um, and clarity trumps all. And, you know, you are asked to explain everything as you go, what the reader to is, com- what the reader is coming to those books for is not an experiment, you know, and that's fine. Please don't hear that as a judgment. Um, but after a couple of years of that, we were like, fuck it. You know, we're, we're going to, we're going to do this the way we want to do it. This is our book. We're in charge. We may not get this chance again. When you say Emma, that's, that's Emma Rios. She's the artist on the series and yeah. And my mm-hmm. co-creator. So mm-hmm. that's, a, that's the thing. Sometimes people don't understand about mm-hmm. comics is, um, uh, so I write the script and Emma draws the pictures in the in you know in in the simplest sense. But we co this this story is a product of the two of us. It is very much the two of us.
Hey bitch, this is Veronica from VivaLaFeminista.com and one of my favorite nerds growing up was Michael Evans from the show Good Times. I always thought it was awesome that this little African-American boy was walking around with a law book and telling everybody what was up. And as I got older, I realized how radical his nerdiness was. I'd like to think it rubbed off on me. So he's my favorite, one of my favorite nerds. This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by Girl Develop It, a nonprofit organization that exists to provide affordable and judgment-free opportunities for women interested in learning web and software development. Through in-person classes and community support, Girl Develop It helps women of diverse backgrounds achieve their technology goals and build confidence in their careers and everyday lives. Find out more at www.girldevelopit.com. Today on Propaganda, we're talking about favorite nerds. When I talk to some people about wanting more racial and gender diversity in comic books and film and TV, sometimes people say, why does any of that matter? There are such bigger issues in the world. There are, yes, pressing life and death issues in the world, but pop culture really does matter. Our pop culture, and that includes comics and TV and movies, shapes how we see ourselves and what we see of the rest of the world. One case in point about why good representation matters in pop culture comes to us courtesy of Marvel Comics. Last year, Marvel revamped its long-running Ms. Marvel series with an all-new heroine. Since she debuted in 1977, the crime-fighting superhero Ms. Marvel has had a couple identities, but the best-known one is a blonde white woman named Carol Danvers. Now, last year, writer G. Willow Wilson passed the do-gooder helm to a Pakistani-American teenager from New Jersey named Kamala Khan. The fictional Kamala is charming and very sweet and very smart, and also Marvel's first Muslim character to headline her own comic book. And fans love her. The first issue of Ms. Marvel, which came out last October, was the number one best-selling comic book that month. The issue went on to win the prestigious Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story. Writer Alice Nuttall wrote about Kamala Khan in the Nerds issue of Bitch. She recommended Ms. Marvel on the Bitch list in the issue as one of her favorite nerds. Alice also writes an indie webcomic herself. It's called Footloose, not Footloose like the film. It's more of a Buffy meets Mean Girls kind of adventure. I called up Alice when she lives in the UK to talk about why Kamala Khan has become such a beloved character. So Alice, can you tell me about the character of Kamala Khan? Just what is she like to you as a reader and a comics fan? How would you describe her? I think Kamala Khan is, I think she's one of the best representations of a teenage girl I've read in, in um, well, not just in comics, in a lot of literature, because she's, she's very believable. She's like very nerdy, very passionate, um, kind of has that awkwardness that I think we all go through when we're teenagers. She... Um, she kind of tries to do her best, often makes mistakes, and she's just incredibly well-written and a great, well-rounded character. So that's kind of why I wanted to write about her, why I kind of picked out, picked her out as one of my favorite characters. So I know there's lots of superheroes and superheroines. How does Kamala Khan feel different to you? I mean, I know there's some superlatives around her. She's uh, the first Muslim character to headline her own comic book series for Marvel, but as like a as a person and a character, just how does she feel like she stands out from you know the the crowd of superheroes? 
Um, I think she she kind of stands out because um, I suppose that the thing is that um, that diversity that the, the fact that she's been kind of held as sort of you know a young woman of color superhero Muslim superhero. Um, the fact is that through her character we see how universal her you know how how universal and relatable she can be as well. It kind of I think the fact that the comic series itself has kind of completely sort of gone gone against the whole stereotype that if something if a story is about a character who's marginalized then it's only relatable to people who are marginalized in the same way it's um I think it you know stories like Miss Marvel show that you know telling a good story is sort of the central the central aspect and a good story can be told um and diversity can essentially enrich that story as well yeah, that's a good point because that's something that um, writers get pushback for at the time who are pitching stories for TV or film or for comics um, if they're not about characters who are white and super, uh, in, in the eyes of executives, mainstream, then sometimes a story can get shot down, often saying, you know, this just won't appeal to our audience or this won't appeal to mainstream audiences, which is, you know, code for... Uh, 15 to 40 year old white straight guys and it doesn't have to be that way at all no no definitely not i mean i'm like you know I'm, i've been to quite a few comic conventions this year and i've seen so many Ms. marvel cosplayers um from kind of all walks of life and everything so it shows that she's she has just kind of you know she she's been kind of grip you know grip the comic reading community um not just you know again like appealing to a completely wide audience when you're talking about ms marvel to people who haven't read the comics can you tell us about a specific scene or a specific moment or a story arc where you feel like her character really shines through there's a story arc in one of the recent comics where she's kind of um meeting i am meeting a guy that her parents have set her up with and she's sort of you know imagining that she won't have anything in common with him at all and it turns out they play the same computer game they're both completely involved in that that kind of you know one of one of their favorite things and they have that in common and it just um i just love that moment because it's miss marvel's nerdiness kind of shining through yeah i think she's such a fun character because she does normal teenage things as well as a lot of superhero things i know there's lots of characters lots of superheroes who are you know, trying to lead normal teenage lives. But I feel like in the writing of Kamala's story, she really does do a lot of normal teenage things as well as try and save the world every once in a while. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I also love the fact that she's a fan fiction writer. And, you know, from what we kind of pick up um, with her talking about her, you know, her fan fiction, she's a pretty successful one. She kind of, her stories get to be quite popular. And she, Essentially, she's an Avengers fan and kind of carries that over to when she meets various members of the Avengers. She will kind of happily and without any kind of embarrassment just completely nerd out at them. And it's it's always very, very funny, but it's not belittled in any way, which I really love. I think often you get kind of teenage girls' interests are kind of played down and played as not really serious. And the comic doesn't do that at all, which I think is just a fantastic thing. Kamala Khan celebrated her one-year anniversary a 
have her own comic series this fall. You can find the Ms. Marvel series in any comic book store. My name is Tanika Stotts. I can't remember the exact moment it happened, the spark that went off or the eureka moment that ignited my interest. I just remember her, a lieutenant in space, and I was a brown-eyed girl glued to my television after school. Craving more than just the Adams family, I wanted to be lost in space or at least beyond outer limits. I didn't know it yet, I just wanted to see a representation of me but out there. And she was it. So I was soaked in every moment. Back then there was no high definition, but she was 3D in my heart. Even if her screen time was minor, it mattered more than I understood. After all, she taught me that while tribbles were trouble, they could also still give love. So I mirrored her the best I could imitating fiction with a dress my mother never forgave me for cutting up. I didn't just want to be like her. I wanted to boldly go where my family couldn't afford to send me at the time. Space camp. You see, the magic of Hollywood was not new to me. The existence of sets, props, and television cameras were there to make us all believe. But it was her appearance that sold me on a future I didn't yet understand proving that we were all more than just a mass of conflicting impulses. Right, Nichelle? I'm sorry. I meant lieutenant. As nerd culture has become increasingly mainstream culture, there has been a lot of important discussions about who is excluded from being part of nerdy pop culture. The way race, gender, and power work to make the imagined audience of comics, film, and TV a homogenous white dude, rather than the diversity of readers, listeners, and movie watchers that actually exist, is super important to recognize. This show is meant to reflect the reality of nerddom. There are so many people and characters who are making great work that I want to celebrate and really dig into. As the cold and rainy months set in, I'm excited about having a whole bunch of new stuff to nerd out on. Be sure to check out the Nerds print issue of Bitch. And thanks so much to Aya De Leon, Veronica Ariola, and Tanika Stats for sharing their favorite nerds and our voicemails on this show. Hey, podcast listeners. Have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet, Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you. Not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org podcast. And be sure to mention propaganda or backtalk when you donate. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker, and the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>